Well, good evening. It's good to be with you all again. Um, just quick raise of hand. Anyone not here for last night? Do I need to do any recap? Just one, maybe two, three? Okay, I'll give you a short recap of what we did last night, and then we'll run into tonight. So what we did last night, we, I don't know if you were here on Sunday at all in the morning, but uh, in Sunday morning I, I talked about politics and how Christians should think about politics and think about how to interact with, with fellow Christians when you disagree about politics. And then Sunday night I applied that to the issue of ethnic harmony. But last night, I really just started laying the groundwork for what the Bible teaches about ethnic harmony, things like we're made in God's image. And I think it, it was relatively uncontroversial. Would you say that's fair if you were here? Uh, so tonight is the controversial part, um, the part that connects probably most directly with um, what's been happening in our, in our culture here in Minneapolis and in our nation uh, since late May, especially. Uh, so th- we're going to be talking about some difficult topics tonight. And a church is a, a church context is a great place, a great uh, uh, context for doing that because we share. I think if you're here, I'm guessing we share uh, our common uh, following Jesus as our master. The Bible is our authority, and we have space even to disagree with each other a little bit and still be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and be fellow church members. Um, so this is a place where we can, we can talk kindly to each other and disagree. You can disagree with me, and I won't take it personally. So that's my, my heart right there, is I'm going to present how I'm understanding some controversial issues in light of Scripture. I could be wrong, and I'm happy to engage you in the Q&A at the end. And there'll be lots of time for Q&A tonight, God willing. So on your handout, I've got one main statement that I'm then going to unpack in seven steps. Um, the one main statement is this. The church should love justice which entails treating all ethnicities justly and encouraging its members to pursue justice in society. So that's what I'm going to try to unpack. And a few of these statements we don't need to take much time on because we did that on Sunday, the, uh, Sunday morning. So the first statement, we did that on Sunday morning at, in session one. Justice is making righteous judgments. Do you remember how I illustrated that from 1 Kings? Which king did I use? Solomon. So remember when he has the, the two moms, one has a living baby, one has a dead baby, and he, he arbitrates, so who, what do we do here? And he decided something that revealed who the true mother was, and all Israel was in awe at him because they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. It illustrates, so justice is making righteous judgments that line up with God's character. Second statement systems, not just individuals, can be unjust. And as I, as I said on Sunday morning, what I mean by that statement is this recognizing there, there are situations in which uh, no single individual can stop the injustice. It's bigger than one person. Uh, I'm not conceding uh, certain frameworks for thinking about systemic injustice, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But the category itself, I think we should be able to agree on, there's a category for wide injustices that are bigger than just one person. And that can, that can pretty much anywhere you have groups of sinful people, you can expect that's going to be there to some degree. Okay. Now, here we go. Third, third statement. This is new. Uh, Christians must not show ethnic partiality in attitude or deed. And those who have sinned that way must repent. Now, earlier, uh, last, this is last night, I argued that 
ethnic partiality, that's the phrase I'm going to use more often than racism, ethnic partiality is sinful. That is, it's sinful to believe that your ethnicity is better than another, superior to another. It's, it's sinful to speak or act in a way that implies that your ethnicity is superior to another. It's sinful to prejudicially or antagonistically discriminate against another person on the basis of their ethnicity. It's sinful to disprove of interethnic marriage since God approves of it. Christians must not show ethnic partiality in attitude or deed, and those who, have, who, who sin that way must repent. Now let me demonstrate that from one passage of Scripture, which actually is not specifically about ethnic partiality. It's about a different kind of partiality, but it applies to this issue. So just listen to this. This is from... James, end of James 1, so I'm going to start in verse 26, and just read into uh, the first part of chapter 2. So James 1, 26 says, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality. So that's, that's the command right there. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are, not, uh, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you say, what, what does that have to do with ethnic harmony? So that, that passage is saying, don't show partiality because of someone's riches or their rank. Love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't explicitly address ethnic harmony. But how can that not apply to it, right? That, that applies to showing partiality in other ways. And I'm arguing we must not show partiality in regard to ethnicity. All right, that's, that's statement number three. If you have questions, jot them down as we go. At the end, we'll have time for Q&A. Let's go to number four. Christians who are victims of ethnic partiality must not nurture resentment or show ethnic partiality in return. Now, that statement might sound insensitive, uh, like, it, like I'm not showing compassion, like I'm being hard-hearted. I just want you to know that's not my intent. When I write a, a sentence like that, uh, my intent is to show compassion by lovingly sharing the truth and by not withholding the truth. So that statement is true. And there are lots of places I could go to show you this. I'm going to go to just one. Romans 12, 17 and following. Just listen to this. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Also, I could go to the letter of 1 Peter and show over and over and over in a letter written to people who, who believers who are experiencing persecution, how they're to respond to such persecution. It's not by taking vengeance. It's not. It's not by, by showing ethnic partiality in return. And this is a truth that could be life-giving to people who are victims of the sin of ethnic partiality. Uh, so here's my mentor, Don Carson, how he frames this. I find this helpful. This is from his book, Love in Hard Places, which I refer to at the end of the handout. There's a free PDF of that book online if you want to track this down. So what I'm about to read is from page 103. He says, the fall did not introduce mere sins. It introduced the fallenness that is endemic to every human being. God is no longer at the center of every one of us. Each of us wants to be at the center to have a domesticated God, in other words, a false God, an idol. Such idolatry means that we seek to control not only our own lives, but in some measure the lives of all who touch us. And this massive de-godding of God, this odious idolatry, works out in countless sins of every description. It includes oppression on the one hand and nurtured resentments on the other, and both feed into what we call racism. Idolatry means we're so selfish most of the time that most of us don't automatically think in terms of sacrificial service. If idolatry produces tyrants whose chief lust is to control, it also produces populist demagogues whose chief lust is to control, and both of them will entertain mixed motives, confusing their genuine desire to do good among their own people with their transparent lust for power. Because almost all sin has social ramifications, the biases, hatreds, resentments, nurtured feelings of inferiority and superiority, anger, fear, sense of entitlement, all are passed on in corrosive ways to new generations. It's kind of depressing to think about, isn't it? Uh, so I'm not, I do not, by saying this, I don't intend to downplay or excuse ethnic partiality at all. Ethnic partiality is sinful, and Christians who are guilty of it must repent. We just talked about that. Here I am addressing Christians who are at the receiving end of ethnic partiality or, or, or even just perceived ethnic partiality. And with love, I want to gently warn against adopting the mindset of a victim that is so common in our culture now. So I'm, I'm warning against an, a type of empathy blackmail where this is the kind of mindset. You must completely agree with me and share my perspective or you don't love me. So I'm warning against being oversensitive about what you perceive to be microaggressions with the result that you're so easily triggered that you, you can't live out what the New Testament says about loving your neighbor. Uh, like 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, bitterness is a cancer that will destroy you. So that's what I'm warning against. That's my heart behind this, this fourth statement. Statement number five, Christians should show compassion to people who have experienced ethnic partiality. So what do you do when you have a, a Christian or a non-Christian friend who's experienced ethnic partiality? Uh, you listen. You try to understand their perspective. You grieve with them. You lament that this is a broken world and that they've experienced that. You sympathize. Uh, you obey Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. Uh, that's part of being a loving 
human being. That's how you interact with such a person. Um, in, our, in our cultural context, that's often people uh, who, I, who are African-American. And uh, if you're not African-American, it's hard to identify with, with the life that goes with that in this country with this history. Here's how Don Carson puts it uh, in, in that book that I just mentioned. This is on page oh, four, 94. He says, because of the many legal sanctions now in place, some forget the bitter degradation of the Jim Crow culture. Bet some of you in here could talk, tell stories about that. Some of you are, are my elders, and you probably lived through some of that. And he says, the attitudes wedded to the Jim Crow culture have not everywhere been expunged. I suspect that most European Americans have very little understanding of the cumulative destructive power of the little degradations that almost all African Americans, especially older African Americans, have experienced. To say nothing of the less common but still too frequent threats, racial profiling, and frankly illegal, to say nothing of immoral, injustices they've suffered. So that, that's a, a real thing. I don't mean to be dismissive of that at all. Uh, and when we have brothers and sisters and friends who've experienced these kinds of ethnic partialities, we need to listen and love them and, and weep with them. They're, it's awful. All right, statement number six. Uh, this is probably the most controversial point I'll say tonight. Uh, any person of any ethnicity can be guilty of showing ethnic partiality. It's not only those with more power who can be guilty of showing ethnic partiality. Some of you might be thinking, that's controversial. So I'm gonna explain why it's controversial. Some of you know exactly why it's controversial. Um, that passage I just read in James 1, James 1, 26 to 213, uh, it's talking about showing partiality to rich people. So my question would be, uh, can only rich people be greedy? So poor people can be greedy? Okay. That's interesting to think about it that way. Uh, it's the same logic works with, the, uh, with ethnic partiality. Any person of any ethnicity can be guilty of, of this sin. Now, I remember when this first hit, I first hit me, I was living in Chicago area at a school in a suburb called Deerfield, and I was teaching a class, so I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and there was a South Campus in South Chicago, a Trinity South Campus, and it's 99% African Americans there, and I was teaching classes there. And I happened, so one of the schools I went to was Bob Jones University, which has a reputation for um, not being good in this area. I'll say it that way. You know, you know, uh, I don't think it's true anymore. Uh, but anyway, the, so the dean introduces me to about 30 uh, students and reads my bio and says I'm from Bob Jones University and then walks out of the room and then they're all staring at me. Uh, and I realize, oh my, they all think I'm evil. Uh, and after spending many, many hours with them, we developed a friendship, and we were able to talk freely, and it was, it was, it was good. But uh, the way that they would uh, talk about racial issues was very different from how I would. And I remember relating this conversation to Don Carson, my mentor, uh, and he just he chuckled and said, oh, you're, you're getting an experience that uh, um, is very common. And, and I said, I don't, I don't understand it. If I would say what they were saying, people would call me racist. And he's like, 
you don't understand from their perspective, they can't be guilty of racism because they don't have the power. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Uh, so I, that's where I had to first work through this. This was oh, 2006, seven around there. But that, the mindset that goes behind that has become more popular in our culture in the last few years. So here's how, so in that book by Carson, Love and Hard Places, this is what he wrote, uh, even this is in the early 2000s. He said, many African-Americans don't accept this, that is that, that any person of any ethnicity can be guilty of ethnic partiality. They don't accept this. Uh, they think that racism, it, and I should say, not just many, many African-Americans, many whites and others agree with them. Uh, they think that racism is the sin of the powerful, the sin of the overlord. They think of racism as the sum of racial prejudice plus power. By definition, then, they cannot be racist since they don't have the power. And Carson says, I do not see how thoughtful Christians, black or white, can accept such a definition. He says elsewhere, from the point of view of many blacks and many others, if whites prefer their own company and entertain stereotypes of blacks, it's racism. If blacks prefer their own company and, and entertain stereotypes of whites, it's both understandable and deserved. And I'm not meaning to throw stones. Honestly, my, my heart is, I'm just trying to be faithful and saying, here's what Scripture teaches and try to use definitions that come from the Bible about sin. And I, I don't see any grounds for distinguishing sins based on whether you have more power or not. Now, a common way of viewing all relationships today is through this lens of power. So it, it's called critical theory. And uh, sees two basic groups. So the, you have those with more power, and those would be the oppressors, and then you have those with less power, those are the oppressed. Now, the most helpful analyses of critical theory I've encountered are by a fellow named Neil Shenvey. Again, at the end of your handout, I linked to a bunch of those. I found him to be enormously helpful. I've read everything on his website. I've engaged with him privately over emails. Uh, I'm very impressed with his understanding, his grasp, his spirit. He's, he's sound, and I can recommend him enthusiastically. Uh, and he, uh, so critical theory separates people into two basic categories. You've got the oppressor and the oppressed, and then it insists that the oppressed cannot be guilty of oppression. And that means, by definition, that minorities can't be guilty of racism. So here are the type of, of categories of oppressor and oppressed uh, within critical theory. So if the category is race, then the, the oppressors, the privileged group, would be whites, white people. And then the minority group, the oppressed, would be blacks, and then others, uh, brown, like Asian, Latino, native, and then in the middle border group would be bi biracial. So the, 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 the oppression there would be racism. Uh, but, so that's called critical race theory. But critical theory is a lot bigger than that. Let me just try to make sense of this by showing you other categories. So critical theory includes sex. So the privileged group would be not just men, biological men. Uh, and the target group, the oppressed group, is biological women. Oppressor, oppressed. And gender, you're thinking, what is, you just said sex, now we have gender, they're different? Yeah, they're different. So for gender, the, the privileged group is gender-conforming biological men and women. 
So people who are biologically male and female who identify as male and female. And then the targeted social group would be transgender, genderqueer, intersex. That's the oppressed group. Are you with me, everyone? You still hanging? Okay. Uh, here's another category, a sexual orientation. So the oppressed group, the privileged group is heterosexuals. The oppressed group is uh, homosexual, or lesbian, gay men. Uh, another issue would be class, where you've got the rich people and then the working class poor people. Another is ability. So you've got the able-bodied people and then people with disabilities. Another issue is religion. So you've got Christians or Protestants, and then you've got uh, non-religious people or Jews or Muslims or Hindus. They're the oppressed. Another is age. You've got adults. They're the privileged category. And then elders and young people are the oppressed. I just read off a chart, by the way, from a book that's promoting this. Um, trying to think of other categories. Uh, one is, is weight. So um, you can fill in the gaps. I don't wanna, I'll mess it up if I say it. But yeah. So there, there are all sorts of categories. But the, the idea is, uh, for our purposes this evening, ethnic minorities are the oppressed and therefore cannot be guilty of racism. And with the authority of God's word, I want to say no, no, no. Any person of any ethnicity can be guilty of showing ethnic partiality. Uh, you can't say, well, because of my situation socially, I can't be guilty of that sin. We can all be guilty of that sin. You're free to, to follow up with more questions on that in Q&A if you'd like. 8.7. This will be the longest of the, of the headings, and then we'll go into Q&A. When pursuing justice in society, Christians must distinguish between straight line and jagged line political issues. Now, I've already introduced this topic to you on Sunday morning, so I'm not going to belabor this, but let me just remind you again what that is. So I've got, actually, if I had a, a big slide to show this to you, hang on. So on the, on the, the left, your left, uh, it says at the top, biblical theological principle, and then a straight arrow to whole church position. And then on the right, biblical or theological principle and a jagged line to a Christian freedom political position. Okay, that's what I tried to explain on Sunday morning. So straight line, don't murder. That's a straight line to abortion is sinful. Uh, biblical theological principle, show compassion to foreigners and protect your family. Those are both biblical principles. How do you get from there to an immigration policy? It's not a straight line. It's very complex. You get, remember this? Okay, got the, the, the distinction? All right. So how does this apply to the issue of ethnic harmony? Well, this is where I'd like to bring in an article by Kevin DeYoung. I think, is it on your handout? Is the article on it or just yeah. a link to it? Uh, racial reconciliation. Okay, so there's, there's a URL that tells you? Okay, yeah. so you can go there on your phone if you want. I'm gonna read part of that because it's such a helpful article. What I've done, so it's, it's basically analysis of what do we all agree on, we Christians, regarding ethnicity? And what do we likely not agree on? And it's helpful to just think through this. He does this in uh, 11 different categories of things that we agree on and disagree on. And I find this so helpful to think, all right, we are united on this. 
And even as fellow church members, we might not be united on this, and that's okay. We can talk about the things we're not united on, but let's not divide the church over them. So I'd like to just read through these and, and comment on them a little bit, because I've, I've recommended this article, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times since it came out in 2018. It's, it's in the top five things I've read on this issue. It's so, so helpful. All right, so topic number one he's got is racism. So what do we agree on? All people are made in the image of God and deserve honor, respect, protection. Every notion of racial superiority is a blasphemous denial of the image of God. There's no place for racial prejudice and ethnic favoritism in the church. Where bigotry based on skin color exists, it should be denounced and repented of. Amen, amen, amen. So we, we can agree to that. Here's what we might not agree on. So what else counts as racism or the degree to which our cultural, civic, or ecclesiastical institutions are basically race-blind, racialized, or outright racist. We can have opinions on that. We can talk about it. But I don't think we all have to agree exactly, 100% line up, in order to be fellow church members. That's, that's my opinion. If you want, we can argue about that or talk about it. Not argue about it. We can talk about it in the Q&A. Here's a second topic. Racial disparities. So here's what DeYoung says we should agree on. There are deep and disturbing differences between blacks and whites, he's talking about in America, when it comes to a variety of statistical measurements, including education, employment, income, incarceration, home ownership, standardized test scores, single parent households, and participation at the highest levels of leadership in business, academics, athletics, and politics. Think that's fair? All right, and he says, here's what we would disagree on. What are the reasons for these disparities? Well, they could be owing to personal choices, cultural values, families of origin, educational opportunities, structural racism, legacy of oppression, or a combination of these and other factors. Likewise, we don't agree on the best approach to closing these gaps. Some favor political measures. Others focus on educational reform. Others emphasize church planting and discipleship while others work for cultural renewal and community development. Many Christians see the need for all of the above, but even here there's disagreement about what the church's focus should be. I think that's brilliantly put. Uh, it bothers me when I see people assume that the mere, the, mere, the mere presence of disparity means that's evidence of ethnic partiality. It might mean that, it, it, there could be a correlation, but that's not, one thing doesn't necessarily lead to the other. We, we, can't, we can't look at a disparity and say, I know the reason for that disparity. It's because of racism. I, don't, I, I think it's more complex than that. Here's a, a third issue, Martin Luther King Jr. What should we agree on? Uh, MLK was a courageous civil rights activist worth remembering and celebrating, MLK was used by God to help expose racial bigotry and overturn a corrupt system of Jim Crow segregation. King's clear-sighted moral convictions about racism, his brilliant rhetoric, and his example of nonviolence in the face of intense hatred make him a heroic figure in American history. Some of you might have a problem with green with that one. I'm not sure. Uh, let me, let me read the other side first, and then I'll, I'll comment. He's, uh, what we would disagree on, how gospel Christians should celebrate this legacy. While most people acknowledge that King held unorthodox theological positions and was guilty of marital infidelity, 
we are not of one mind on how these matters should be discussed or how they relate to his overall contribution to American and ecclesiastical life. In a similar vein, we don't agree on how to evaluate the legacy of clay-footed theologians like Jonathan Edwards or Robert Louis Dabney. Uh, Dabney was a, a slaveholder and advocated for that. And, you know, and also a, a systematic theologian. So I, I don't know this congregation well enough to, to know where you're at on this one. Uh, I, um, so my, my guess is that some of you are thinking, well, I know more about MLK and uh, things have come out that show that he was a very immoral person. And I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh, but I, do you have a category for a person who is immoral in certain areas and in other areas does commendable things? I do. Uh, I'd say our current president fits that in some ways. Um, so I have no problem agreeing to that, that first, the left column on agreeing about what he says about MLK. I, I celebrate much of what he did. I, one time recently, I just sat down and watched on YouTube uh, Meet the Press with, with Martin Luther King Jr. And then there's a moderator and then three journalists. And they just grilled him for a half hour, just pump like mean questions going after him. And he was cool-headed, composed, and brilliant in his replies. I really admire that. And his strategy, so different than many of the strategies people are, are, are using now of not using violence and persuasion. I just, I admire him. And his tactics are commendable. And I, I think we can appreciate that even while disagreeing with some of his lifestyle choices. Okay, again, you can disagree with me in the Q&A if you'd like. Uh, number four, is our, our history, that is our American history, has much to celebrate. So this is the, the issue is American history. Uh, so we can agree that we have much to celebrate. Uh, there are far-sighted leaders, Judeo-Christian ideals, commendable heroes, technological innovation, military sacrifices. There are many reasons we can be proud to be Americans. Uh, by the way, I am, I'm, you don't have an American flag standing somewhere, do you? Is that on purpose? Good. Uh, I, it bothers me when I come into a church building and there's an American flag on the stage uh, because, someone said why, uh, it signals, what, what if I'm not an American? Is this, a, is this like an American gathering? So when I, I lived in England for half a year, uh, they didn't have a British flag when we worshiped. Uh, I've, I've been in Africa and uh, Cambodia and other places. Like, they don't have their nation's flag when we worship. What, what unites us to getting together is we're Christians. Now, we also happen to be Christians who are citizens of a nation, but that's not what brings us together to worship God. You can say more about that. It was, it's probably the pastor's decision, so you guys can follow up in Q&A if you like. Okay, so, all right. So that's what we agree on uh, about American history. Here's what we disagree on. Whether our history should be remembered chiefly as one of liberty or virtue, spotted with tragic failures and blind spots, or whether our national story, despite many noble exceptions, is more, more fundamentally one of hypocrisy, prejudice, and oppression. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us how to go there. <laughs> it was written before our nation existed. Um, we can disagree on those things. Here's a, a fifth area, current state of affairs. Here's where we should agree. Race relations have come a long way in the past 50 years. Things are better than they used to be. We also agree that racism still exists and that even if we play by the rules and pursue the American dream with the same effort, 
We do not all begin at the same starting line or experience the same success. Here's where we might disagree. Whether our cultural, political, and academic institutions are basically fair, with exceptions, or whether they're basically rigged and in need of structural change, with repentance for the majority's part in perpetuating systemic bias. For example, in just the last year, he says, I read a thoughtful book by a white man arguing that the deck is stacked by whites and has always been stacked by whites against African-Americans. I also read a thoughtful book by a black man arguing that racism is largely a thing of the past and that focusing on black victimhood is self-defeating. And so I realize, of course, that neither book is representative of the way most whites and blacks think of the issue. So that's the current state of affairs. You track with me? This, I find this helpful. All right, here's the sixth area. Corporate responsibility. Here's what we should agree. It's appropriate in some situations for Christians, for Christian institutions, and for churches to be rebuked for corporate sins and to repent of corporate failures. The Old Testament prophets often denounced the nation of Israel, even though individuals within the nation were certainly living in holiness and integrity. Likewise, we see that Daniel offered a prayer of confession for his people, even though he likely was not personally guilty of all the sins he confessed. In the New Testament, we see that the Jews were held responsible for Christ's death, even though some Jews followed Jesus and lamented his death. So that's a category. Corporate responsibility is a category. Here's where we might disagree. When and how, and in many situations, whether this corporate accountability and repentance should take place. We don't agree on how or if the passage of time, racial identity, and ecclesiastical affiliation should shape these matters. Similarly, we don't agree what should be done, if anything, beyond repenting for corporate sin. One of the most helpful uh, articles I've read on this is, is listed at the end of the handout by Neil Shenvey on this issue of corporate repentance. And I think, this is me talking, this is my opinion, this is where we might disagree. My opinion is that it's misguided to call people today to repent of the sins of people in previous generations as if there are sins because we share the same skin color. To me, that does not make any sense. Uh, and, and it's not a parallel to Israel, which was a theocracy and a, a very different than our situation now. That's, that's my personal opinion, but we can disagree on that. Number seven, politics and the church. Here's where we would agree. The church of Jesus Christ must not be beholden to any political party. We agree that the church is neither competent nor called to offer opinion on the specifics of every political debate or policy discussion. Preachers should, as a general rule, preach verse by verse through the Bible, letting God's word set the agenda, rather than riding hobby horses or trying to respond to the latest controversy. At the same time, we agree that Christians, churches, and pastors should not be silent on matters of justice about which the Bible clearly speaks. That's good. Amen. Here's where we might disagree how the spirituality of the church applies in every situation, or if it's a biblical idea in the first place. At, at its best, the spirituality of the church roots us in the explicit teaching of Scripture and helps us keep the main thing the main thing. At its worst, the spirituality of the church has been used to ignore evil in our midst and sidestep issues of biblical obedience. While we recognize that the gospel is of first importance and the gospel has public ramifications, we don't always agree on how these two convictions play out side by side in real time. So there's little agreement on which issues are moral and biblical and which are merely political. That was number seven of 11. So here's number eight. Sy systemic injustice. Systemic injustice. Not systematic. Systemic. So here's where I think we'd agree. Sin is not just a matter of individual responsibility. It's possible for systems and structures to be unjust 
when the people inhabiting those systems and structures may not have personal animus in their hearts. That's a, that's a category. Here's where we disagree. Whether disparities themselves indicate systematic and structural injustice exist. Likewise, we don't agree on the best remedies for institutional racism where it does exist. Number nine, police and judicial system. Any police officers here? No? Okay. I like police officers. So. Um, we agree. Our country imprisons far more of its citizens than any other nation does. We also recognize that minorities are imprisoned at rates disproportionate to their population as a whole. The presence of mass incarceration has a deleterious effect on many minority communities and families, as well as in the lives of those who are imprisoned. Here's where we disagree. We might disagree. The reasons for mass incarceration or whether the disproportionate imprisonment of minorities is a sign of entrenched bias. We don't agree on the nature of policing, nor on the state of our judicial system, whether both are largely fair and colorblind, or whether both are prejudiced, intentionally or unintentionally, against persons of color. By the same token, we often respond differently to stories involving the police and African Americans, either siding instinctively with law enforcement officers, or assuming that each questionable encounter is another example of pervasive police brutality. Again, he wrote this in 2018. It sounds like he wrote it this week. Here's number 10 of 11, Sunday morning. We agree the biblical vision of heaven is a glorious picture of a multi-ethnic throng gathered in worship of our triune God. We would rejoice to see our churches reflect this biblical vision more and more. To that end, we lament our cultural blind spots, and we don't know we have them. That's why they're called blind spots, which make it more difficult for people unlike us to feel at home and be in positions of leadership and influence in our churches. Here's where we disagree. To what degree this segregation on Sunday morning is the result of present sin, historical sin, personal preference, unfortunate cultural ignorance, or understandable and acceptable differences in worship and tradition. We don't agree on whether all churches must be multi-ethnic or should at least strive to be multi-ethnic as their location allows, or whether there are ever justifiable reasons, and if so, what those reasons are for a church to be entirely or nearly monocultural. And if the pursuit of racial diversity is desirable, we don't agree on whether this multi-ethnic vision is just for predominantly white congregations and conferences and communities, or if it also applies to historically black churches and conferences and communities. Last one, the church in the world. We agree the Bible calls the church to be honest about its own sins, to keep itself unstained from the world. As salt and light, we should be distinct from the world while at the same time having a salutary effect of, on the world. We disagree which is the more urgent need of the hour, to repent of our sin and renew our witness in the world, or to spotlight sin in the world and keep ourselves free from its corrupting influence. We know both are necessary, but our personal and corporate inclinations often lean in one direction or the other. And we often disagree on what urgency looks like in racial reconciliation, and whether this conversation should or shouldn't take precedence over other moral issues like protecting the unborn and defending biblical marriage and sexuality. I find that so helpful to just talk through controversial issues and say, here's where we agree and here's where we probably don't agree. And that's okay. We can still talk about it. But just to kind of separate it like that is helpful. It's a helpful diagnosis. I find that, I find that very, very constructive. Uh, I think that this ethnicity issue is so challenging because it involves so many questions that we can't easily answer from our 
like our, our church doctrinal statement, or our confessions that we hold, our traditions. So we, we agree, yeah, we joyfully affirm that God created us in his image. Yes, we must bear with one another and forgive one another. Yes, we, we believe that a multi-ethnic heaven is going to be glorious. We love that. But we disagree when we try to apply our shared theology to American history and economic disparity and police shootings and critical theory. And it's, it's, it adds up. And that's why figures like this, I'm not, you're not going to be able to see the words, but what this is, is a, it's a picture of an iceberg. Can you kind of see that iceberg? So you've got the water line, iceberg's what you see, and the, the, the submerged part is what you don't see. Well, the top part, the part you see, it says, this is from a book, it says overt racism, socially unacceptable, like racist name-calling, racist slogans, racial jokes, hate crimes, racial slurs, uh, violent racist attacks. Like those are overt racial sins. But then at the bottom, it calls it covert racism. And it, it, I don't think this is helpful. It, it lists uh, disproportionate police stop and search, media racial stereotypes, immigration discrimination, dis disproportionate unemployment rates, denial of white privilege, colorism, hiring discrimination, racial profiling, far-right nationalism, Eurocentric curriculum, implicit bias, disproportionate mental health issues, disproportionate school exclusion, disproportionate course sentencing, police brutality. Just the way that's framed, I don't find helpful. Uh, I think we should agree that the top part, those overt racisms, yeah, those are sinful, but I think we can disagree reasonably on the examples of covert racism because ethnic partiality may not be the only factor or even the main factor for, that accounts for those disparities, that list of disparities. And if that's the case, then a figure like that is reductionistic and misleading, and, and frankly, it's divisive. It's not, it's not building up the body. I've got convictions, opinions, about all of those issues. And I'm, should I say I'm happy to talk about them? I don't know if I'm, maybe not on the recording, but I'm, I'm happy to discuss them with, with, with you. Uh, but I, like I preached on Sunday morning, I've got to distinguish between straight line and jagged line issues. I may try to persuade you on a jagged line issue, like police brutality, that topic. I'm happy to talk about it. But I'm going to distinguish from how I talk about that, from how I talk about straight line issues. That's where I need to say, this is the Christian position. This is what we must all agree on. Now, it, it's okay if a church has pastors and members who don't agree across the board on jagged line issues regarding ethnicity. That's fine. Uh, the more important issue is how are you going to respond to each other when you have those disagreements? Are you gonna let it sinfully divide your church? Are you going to vilify each other when you, when you disagree? Are you going to schismatically crusade for your view on a jagged line issue in your various relationships and on social media? Or are you going to prioritize loving each other over convincing them that your opinions are right? That's, that's my burden. I've got more we can say here, but I'm going to stop there so we have time for q and I want to make sure you have your, an opportunity to, to ask questions about this. There's a lot here, and I'm sure there are questions, and... Pastor Paul, are you going to be our moderator? All right. Thank you, Andy. Get that. So, um, first off, Dan, anything you want to ask Andy or follow up um, with him on, just right out of the gate? The, um, there, there's been some that have expressed concern that the evangelical church is going to splinter over this issue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Obviously, it's no one knows the future, but do you see the seriousness of that concern? I'd say it already is splintering. Mm. 
um, churches. Churches are, are losing members. People either leaving churches because they think they're too woke, which would be uh, uh, the side that is more left-leaning politically, or they're, they're not conservative enough, so people will leave over that. Um, or they leave because the church is too conservative and not woke enough. That's happening in churches all over this country right now. So I'd say the splintering's already been happening. Yeah. Is that your experience? It's maybe not in this church, but... but not here, but yeah. yes. Yeah, I, it, it, it's a concern. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a concern. Yeah. I don't know where it's going to land or yeah. end, but, but that's what you're seeing as well. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Examples of it. Um, we, so I was talking to some friends about this earlier today and trying to think, why, why is that the case? I don't know if your experience matches mine, but from like 2006 to 16, it was a really exciting time in conservative evangelicalism. There are groups like T4G and TGC and those sorts of things sprouting up in this gospel-centered movement. And it was so exciting, and uh, it was... It was exhilarating. I just loved it. Something changed 2014 to the present, especially 2016. And I think part of it has to do with the last election. That's my guess. There are other factors. Um, but I, I just wonder if, if the polarizing personality of our current president has something to do with, with how, how things, things have played out. And some people have uh, been offended if a fellow church member votes for or against our current president and interpreting a vote to mean something. And that's, a, that's just one factor among many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything more, Dan, you want to say about the absence of an American flag on our pulpit? <laughs> I'm sorry for bringing that up. I didn't prep for that. So, you poked the beehive twice. Well, <laughs> just giving no, you an opportunity. Not. Listen, um, th- this can be recognized very controversial, and I've had... Um, uh, ex-Marine in our church. He's no longer here, but and not because of this. But uh, we had some very heated conversation. I don't mean heated in a bad way. Just I understood what he, he's, he's saying. I fought for that flag. I, uh, I have friends that died for that flag. How could you not have a flag here? And uh, please know, I love the flag as well. And uh, it's not a matter of... Um, dishonoring America or something along those lines. But there's so much more happening when the church gathers. And one of the things that we must work with all of us is uh, there are some people more bent this way than others. They have a very hard time distinguishing Christianity from Americanism. The, the, the two to them are like one. And I think there's just some places that we can help them remember that's not the case. Uh, the other thing is, it, there's an individual corporate distinction. We fly a flag at our house from time to time and happily do so. Uh, you fly 10 of them if you want at your home. That's a good thing as a citizen uh, if you desire to do that. But the church is, a, uh, there's a different kingdom. And we don't serve America the same way as a church. But there is a, as we come in, I think you brought this out well, as we come in, we're we're not expressing the idea that we're Americans. We're expressing a world identity, an identity in Christ. And um, we want to make sure that that identity is clear. Uh, We could put a flag up, and I've, I've thought of this. If we had a flag up, then we need to put a flag up where everyone was born. Uh, in, in the in the church, and that could just be hard. <laughs> we we it certainly would decorate our, our our place in a unique way, 
but it's, it's more saying that we're a, a global communion. In our Americanism, we can be proud of our heritage. We can thank God for this nation. I think that we should. I think it's a, uh, there's a distinct history here that we can honor, and I know a fair amount about it. I've, I have a master's degree in history, and I studied American history uh, for much of that effort, and I love it. And my family can tell you if we go to, uh, on vacation, we're going to hit at least one historical site. <laughs> so I love America. But the Church of Jesus Christ is global. Uh, it, Americanism is not Christianity. And so this is just a subtle way that we can make that message. No disrespect whatsoever, but a higher respect for heaven and Christ. Thanks, Dan. Hey, there was a, a Christianity Today debate panel of three different views on this, and uh, Douglas Wilson wrote the one taking this position, and he <laughs> ends it by saying, so no, don't, don't put an American flag in your worship uh, room, but uh, put, it, uh, put it on your pickup truck right next to the gun rack. only douglas wilson (laughs) um andy you talked you you gave a warning against adopting the mindset of a victim yeah um i I just i guess i direct this at dan you can certainly follow up too but we we get how this directly relates to this issue of race ethnicity Mm -hmm. it obviously touches on so much more than that I just want, Dan, you to share any thoughts regarding that victim mindset, even ways in which it kind of creeps into our, ways in which we're tempted to go there, Mm -hmm. even beyond simply this topic of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. We all suffer, and we suffer at the hands of others, every single one of us. Uh, There are people that we can point to that have hurt us deeply. And that suffering is very real. Look, look to the Psalter. It's the, the idea is not to shove it to the side and pretend it didn't happen. You speak it. You accept it. You think about it. And you take it to God as we suffer as victims. But there is a, a response of, to victimhood that I just don't find anywhere in the DNA of Jesus. He, he, no one suffered more than Jesus Christ. No, no one's ever suffered the injustices that he suffered. And as he suffered, how does he suffer? How does he receive that suffering? And what does he do with that suffering? Uh, there you just see, I, I just don't see an ounce of the victim in Jesus. Accepting and acknowledging, we have like an Acts 2, 22 and 23, the Father designed this, uh, wicked people acted against him, and he suffered the ultimate injustice. But he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And I think uh, we're tested in our knowledge, our belief in divine sovereignty and the providence of God when we know that everything that we suffer, and I realize that uh, some suffer horrific things, but when we come to trust in a sovereign God and his providential leading, we know that there are no accidents, there are no mistakes. God is not wringing his hand, and we haven't suffered more than anyone else. But uh, as, he, as he speaks, as, for, as Peter speaks, uh, there, and as the author of Hebrews speaks, there are those who have suffered more. And we need to look to that and know it's a suffering, wicked, violent, difficult world. But in it, we turn the suffering to God. We trust him in it. And we don't walk in this world as victims. 
It's just we, we are in, united in Christ. That's who I am. My identity is in him. My identity is not in what I've suffered. Good. Thank you. Anything you want to add on that, Andy? No, he's, he's pretty good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes, we know, and we're thankful. Yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Okay. Thank you. We've got about 10 more minutes, so questions from the floor. His question is, when we see ways in which critical race theory is um, rooted in error, contrary to the gospel, to what extent should we be engaging in contending for the faith on this particular point? My, my personal view is that we should call it out as sinful, as antithetical to Christianity, as a, a, a worldview that is the opposite of a Christian worldview and not try to find a third way that you know, accepts good parts of it and spits out bad parts of it, but recognize it as a corrupt worldview and that, that has no place in the church. Um, one way I did that recently in a sermon to my church, um, I mentioned it, and then I, it was a sermon on, on suffering persecution when, when, Christ, when the non-Christians malign you. And I gave an example, it's from 1 Peter 4, the, the maligning you for your Christian faith. And I gave an example of a, of a basketball player named Jonathan Isaac. You guys know mm-hmm. Jonathan Isaac? Mm-hmm. He's a 22-year-old, 6, 10 or 6, 11 professional basketball player. For, or at least he was for the Orlando Magic. I think he got released. Okay. So what happened, if you, any of you guys follow the NBA, National Basketball Association, no. It's a, you know, basketball is, okay, so. Reed can tell okay. you. <laughs> All right, so ba- basketball is like a ball, you dribble it, you, you bounce it, and then, uh, so the real tall people, they can dunk it through this hole. Anyway, so right now, they're, they're meeting in the Orlando bubble, so they don't travel all over the, wor- the world with COVID, and uh, this restarted up in, I think, the beginning of July, and the NBA, that's the, the league, they had these social justice messages all over the place, like on their uniforms, it's on the floor, it says Black Lives Matter in big letters. Uh, the coaches, the players are all wearing t-shirts that have those sorts of messages. Well, the first game of the startup, this fellow named Jonathan Isaac was the only player on his team or the other team or and of all the coaches who didn't kneel for the national anthem and he wasn't wearing a shirt that says Black Lives Matter. He just wore his jersey, I think. And he, he's, he's black himself. And he's also just recently became an ordained minister of the gospel. He's a Christian. And afterwards, reporters asked him, well, do you believe black lives matter? And remember, he's black. And <laughs> yes, I believe black lives matter. He, just, he, was, he very articulately explained that he didn't think that he needed to uh, wear a shirt with that message to communicate that he cares for black lives. He, he's very winsome in how he articulated that. And I, I think that what he did was courageous because this isn't the case for everyone, but for me, in my conscience, uh, I think it's very difficult to, to disassociate the three words Black Lives Matter from the organization Black Lives Matter. Just, it's a, a judgment call, it's a wisdom call of how associations work. Mm-hmm. Of course I believe Black Lives Matter, I'm a Christian. So I'd rather say something like Black Lives Count or Black Lives Are Significant because they're made in God's image or something like that. So I'm not denying the sentence. Of course the sentence is true. If you don't believe the sentence is true, you need to repent. Uh, but, but the sentence is connected to an organization which today took off their website on their about page, what they're about, but up till now it's been on their, on their website saying that they're all about dismantling the, the family and they're, they're advancing Marxist ideas and they're, they're basically anti-gospel and, and to the core. 
So to associate with that organization is antithetical to Christianity. So that's an example of how I would call that kind of thing out. Um, that could offend some people. There might, there might be people who write Black Lives Matter on their Facebook wall or something like that. My guess is that when fellow church members do that, they're not, they're not associating it with the organization. They're just believing those words. So I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I explained my take on why I don't think that's, that's wise. That's an example. Did I make, make you totally nervous when I did that? Not at all. Okay. No, 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 not at all. Reed, what did he say? You, didn't you tell me yeah. when he didn't kneel? He said something about he, would only, he only kneels to Jesus Christ or something along those lines. So the rest of the story, so the next night, Jonathan Isaac played a game and he, uh, he tore... Uh, ACL and so he had to be like wheelchaired off the court mm. and you should just look up social media for that night basically people are like yeah you bigot you, you evil mm. Christian that mm. serves you right karma uh, mm. it's pretty pretty bad mm. but let me let me if I can get back to Bill um, I think there's two ways what maybe you weren't done That's fine. <laughs> I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you but I think what Andy's hitting is the one side and that is to speak out uh, I, I think especially outside of the church. Let me just speak to the church, to our church. And, and that is, um, as we are preaching the truth of God's word, it is always undermining falsehood. It is always attacking falsehood. And there's going to be so many different things that are said in sermons and in teaching that goes against that, that anyone who held that view would find it very uncomfortable. So I think guarding the teaching of the church is, is crucial. And then in a church that's as vigilant as we are and where we are, if someone comes into the assembly with these types of ideas, we address them personally and privately uh, and, and know that that is, that is a poison that can come in the door and begin to corrupt really the, the orthodoxy of the church. And so we, we fight that at the front door, which is the, the long process of membership to if if somebody held those views and did not reveal them in the process of membership they're just not being honest maybe we've blown it and not asked the right questions but i really don't think that'd be the case so i hope that helps but it's it's kind of guarding the gate it's if people are within the church that are teaching wrong things to hold them accountable to that and mostly that then can be addressed privately and be and be confronted privately and then um, as a church as a whole, just, just teaching properly will we'll work against that. Amen. Yeah. It's not because I got something figured out. It's, it's just biblical. But, yep. uh, right, right. And, that, and this is where I think the, the challenge comes when there's not a vigilance to who is in the church and who's teaching what. And, and it can really be a struggle as churches get large and uh, particularly those that have a, an attractional bent, uh, that, that the thing is to get as many people in the doors as possible. These, they're going to really struggle with that, with that kind of idea. But I, I think there's a, a vigilance that we are uh, emphasizing and pray that uh, all that we're training and people sending out that we're seeing other churches started that think that way. And there's many, there are many, but uh, certainly some problems there. Just if everybody can be a, a receive um, sinful treatment, everybody can be guilty of racism. Um, everybody could then be a victim of ethnic mistreatment, and we should have a category for both. I think 
Yes. Okay. He's just rephrasing what I said. Yeah. Yeah, which is everyone can be guilty of the sin of ethnic partiality. If that's the case, then everyone could experience ethnic partiality against themselves and be a victim of it. So everyone needs to guard against nurturing resentment when that happens. Are we tracking? That's that last part is exactly what I was saying. Okay. Glad you clarified that if I was unclear. That's good. Good. Last question. One more. Could I jump up, Martin? It, are, are you saying, in part, as a, as a white majority person, I actually could be bitter against those who look down on my, that I'm white? Yeah. That would be one application of it. That's just an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure that's um, happening right now with critical yeah. race theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people being bitter. That right. People are accusing us of white fragility or yep. white yeah. supremacy yeah. and being frustrated with that and, and thinking uh, ethnically partial thoughts in, re in response. Right. That's a way right. that white people could be yeah, sitting right I think now. that's a very valuable observation because it's not, it's, I think it can, we can tend to think it's just those who are ethnic minorities that have to deal with this. We all have a heart we have to deal with and it, it, could, it could hit us too. I know it's not all you're saying, but I appreciate the, the, the point. Yeah, good, good. Right, because there's a lot of bitterness that I hear spewed yep. from white people because of this or that being said, and we have to, we, everyone's got to guard their heart. We could talk all night, but due to the time, we should wrap up. Um, last question for you, Andy, and then Dan, if you just want to close with prayer. Okay. You mentioned yesterday you're in the process of writing an article mm -hmm. on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us what that's for, when it might be out? Yes, uh, so Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary has a journal, probably called Midwestern Journal of Theology or something, I forget the name, and it should come out in November online for free. Hmm. Good, right. good, thank you. Father, we are grateful for Andy, we're grateful for the life you've given him, grateful that you uh, found him, chose him as your son, and brought him through many, many circumstances to this place right now at this time in our church. We're grateful for the instruction, for the sharpening that has taken place of, with His presence here. We do pray that you give Him strength and direction for tomorrow, back here early in the morning, and uh, again teaching, and just give Him the energy and the insight and uh, the faithfulness to you in His heart and soul as He travels back tonight and back down tomorrow and, and fulfills his other duties on Tuesday uh, according to your will. Lord, I pray your blessing on Jenny and the girls and that this family would be prospered spiritually as they've invested uh, this time together in our church and uh, in every way we pray your blessing upon him. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to uh, meet people of other ethnicities to demonstrate uh, our belief that all people have equal worth in your sight, that they are made in your image, and that we would express love and compassion across every divide that limits people from knowing one another and loving one another. And I pray that this church would be a display of the saving work of Christ to unite and draw together people that otherwise would never be together. We would not call one another brothers and sisters, but indeed would be filled with hatred or at least disinterest in one another. But we thank you that Jesus and your word uh, by your spirit have drawn us together here, and I pray that you would grant us a vibrant life 
where we are able to disagree where we should and that we wisely draw those uh, conclusions that this is a good place to disagree, this is a place to receive and welcome our brothers and sisters. And I pray also that you would allow us to know those places where we cannot deviate, where it is a straight line from your word, your truth is staked, it's obvious, and we hold to it. And help us, Lord, even under the pressures that have been referenced here tonight to stand true to your truth and to ever be willing to grow and bend and learn and train our own consciences to think rightly. Lord, aid us to this end. We're laying these requests at your feet, not as a formality, but pleading as your sons and daughters to deepen us and establish us and permit us to honor your truth in a very confused and troubled world. May we never forget that we have the answer in Christ, not because of our wisdom, but because of what you have done for us to save us from our sin, to reconcile us to you and to serve ultimate justice. For you are just and the justifier, and in you we rejoice and give you thanks. Grant us safety as we travel home, rest tonight, and may we serve you with joy in the morning as you give us life. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Good night.